and welcome to Cond, a podcast all about con artists, cheats and liars, where each week we will delve into the unbelievable but true stories of some of the greatest scams from around the world. I'm Michael. And I'm Amy, and we are fascinated by the art of the con. In this series, we want to share with you the incredibly elaborate, complex and extraordinary lengths that people have gone to to fabricate a world, usually with the intention of draining somebody's bank balance. So let's get into episode one and a superb tale to get our teeth into. A slippery serial con man who managed to swindle one of the most dangerous men on the planet, con his way out of prison and even sold the Eiffel Tower, not once, but twice. This is the fascinating true story of Victor Lustig. Our story begins in 1890 in Czechoslovakia. Victor Lustig was born in what was then Austria-Hungary into a classically middle-class family. His father was a small-town mayor and was well-off enough to send Victor to uni in Paris, which, given the era, should give you some idea of the family's wealth. Victor was very bright and was described by his school teachers as exceptionally gifted at learning, but was also described as troublesome. At university, he wasn't hugely focused on his studies, opting instead to spend most of his time gambling and having fun, which, as a former student myself, I can relate to entirely. Yeah, student spends three years getting pissed and enjoying himself. Like shock horror. Hold the front page. Exactly. However, when he was 19, a fellow student slashed his face for, and I quote, paying too much attention to his girlfriend. Lad. <laughs> Cheeky. Victor was left with a scar that ran from the tip of his left eye to the lobe of his left ear. His time at university saw Victor's first foray into the world of gambling and he became very good at poker, bridge and billiards. It was after uni that Victor took to the seas to dip his toe into the world of professional gambling aboard luxury cruises across the Atlantic. These ships were packed with the world's mega rich and Victor was even mentored by some of the age's most successful professional gamblers. Unfortunately, World War I then put a stop to these transatlantic pleasure cruises. After the war, as the Roaring Twenties began, Victor headed to the States as the country's stock market was going through huge and rapid expansion. Basically, everyone was getting rich and Victor Lustig wanted a piece of the action. Now, what happens next involves Victor Lustig's first alias. Throughout his life, he would go on to have quite a few aliases, at least 45 that we know about. Can you imagine trying to keep track of 45 different names? I'd struggle with five. Like the, <laughs> like the admin alone must be colossal. It's amazing he didn't have a breakdown. In 1922, Victor went to Missouri and expressed an interest in a dilapidated old farm. This was a farm that nobody wanted. He adopted the name Count Victor Lustig and invented a sob story about how his life of nobility had been destroyed by the war. He said he had come to the States to rebuild his life and wanted a quiet life as a farmer. This riches to rags story that he concocts is a theme that we will spot with Victor Lustig. It comes back again and again. He offered some bankers $22,000 in Liberty Bonds to buy the farm. Liberty Bonds are essentially money tokens that are issued by the government after a war to help rebuild the country. The bankers were so delighted to get rid of this farm that Victor all of a sudden became their new favourite customer. 
Uh, Count Victor Lustig then requested that the bank convert a further $10,000 of war bonds into cash, which, as their favorite customer, they were happy to do that for him. However, at the last minute, Victor switched the envelopes, making off with the cash and all of his original war bonds. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that he actually had no intention of ever becoming a farmer. As you can imagine, the bankers were furious uh, and they hired a private detective to track him down. Victor actually made no effort whatsoever to cover his tracks and he was caught in a hotel in New York. What happens next is incredible, right? How he pulls this off is beyond me. So the people that capture him managed to get him on a train back to Missouri. However, on the train ride, he managed to convince his captors that pressing charges would cause so much bad press for the bank that investors would back out and the bank would collapse. Not only did he convince them not to press charges, but he insisted they should pay him $1,000 for the inconvenience of being arrested. They paid him and he just walked away. Not only a free man, but a grand better off. Literally a smooth criminal. Bit more like a Billy Bullshitter. <laughs> Next, Victor was in Montreal on business. And his next mark was a Vermont banker called Linus Merton. Poor sod. Lustig hired a pickpocket to steal Merton's wallet. And 24 hours later, Lustig returned the wallet to the banker, complete with all the contents. This trick was simply to earn the confidence of the banker. At this point, Lustig used a classic con trick, the wire. This con will be familiar to you if you have ever seen the sting. But if you're not familiar with the wire, here's a crash course. In the early 1900s in the States, the results of horse races were sent around the country by telegraph, which was notoriously quite slow. The wire was a con trick where the con artists would convince the mark that they could intercept the race wires and therefore get the result and get a bet on before local betting windows had closed. In other words, guaranteeing a win. When the mark then places a massive bet, a glitch occurs and the con artist walks away with their stake. Lustig used the wire to convince the banker he had an inside scoop on the horse race results and took him for a cool $30,000. What a stupidly big bet for a horse race. That's $30,000 like in the 1900s as well. Like that is literally betting your entire everything you own on a horse race. Even if it is a guarantee to win, you absolute bloody That's idiot. That's like my yearly annual yearly yeah. now. Yeah, it's absolutely stupid. What a moron. So he's now two big cons down. Next, Lustig travelled to Paris. And it was here that Lustig would pull off the con that would earn him global notoriety. In May 1925, he noticed in a newspaper an article that suggested the Eiffel Tower was in great need of repair. The cost of the repairs were enormous and a number of options were being considered. There was even a comment from a government official suggesting that it may be cheaper and easier to rip it down than to try and repair it. Ah, oh, that'd be sad, wouldn't it? What would you go to see in Paris? I mean, there'd be no point of going, would there? Where would people get proposed I imagine. to? Yeah, luckily that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> this gave Lustig a genius idea. The mere suggestion of pulling it down was all he needed to create a world in which he was the man in charge of the demolition. He had a counterfeiter create him some official government stationery and gave himself the rather elaborate title of, check out my French accent on this, uh, Deputy Director General of the Ministère de Postes et Telegraphs, which basically in English, he appointed himself the Minister for Posts 
which is the most boring political title I've ever heard. Anyway. Sounds much fancier than that. In French. Yeah, it does, yeah. Anyway, he used his new stationery to contact a number of scrap metal dealers around the city. The letters were vague and indicated only that there was a potential for a considerable government contract and any interested party should meet him at his hotel room. A group of people arrived at the hotel to discuss the contract. He entertained them for a while before getting down to business, when he revealed to them that the government were in fact demolishing the Eiffel Tower. He stressed that the tower was over 30 years old and had never intended to be a permanent fixture. He was also careful to highlight to the potential buyers that the decision was top secret. Such a controversial move would more than likely cause public outcry and therefore their discretion was paramount to securing the deal. How convenient. Four days later, all interested parties were invited to submit a sealed bid. Lustig wasn't at all interested in whose bid was the highest, only who was the best mark. At their previous meeting, he picked out his target, a man called André Poisson. Like my French accent? That's very good, yeah. Mm. Not one to take the money and run, though. Lustig not only told Poisson he was the winner, <laughs> but spun him an elaborate tale of life as a civil servant, being expected to dress and entertain in lavish scale, but without a salary to match. Poisson realised that Lustig was hinted at wanting a bribe, so he pulled a wad of large bills from his pocket as a tip for him. Now, do you want to know what Poisson paid for the Eiffel Tower? Yes, please. It was around $70,000, which in today's money is roughly a million dollars. Now, even if he was actually buying the tower, right, um, supposedly he's selling it off as scrap. The whole point is it's scrap metal. Who's paying a million dollars for some scrap metal, even if there is a lot of it? Like, that seems an awful lot for some scrap metal to me, but what do I know? So... Tower sold, and with a million quid now in his back pocket, Lustig made for the hills of Austria. There, every day, he'd check the newspapers for news of his scam, but nothing. Even weeks later, it seemed he had gotten away with it. He assumed that Poisson was too ashamed and too embarrassed to say anything, so had kept quiet about it all. Clearly chuffed with himself and fueled by greed, Lustig returned to Paris and pulled exactly the same con again with five new scrap metal dealers. However, this time, not all went quite to plan. The deal was done, but before he collected the money, one of the buyers got suspicious and went to the police. Lustig got wind of it and headed pretty sharpish to the States. Meanwhile, in Paris, the press had a field day with the story. Lustig's swindling career did not end with the two towers. Lustig went on to perfect another of the world's most interesting cons. This time, it was called the Romanian Box. Lustig got a cabinet maker in New York to build him a box as and when he needed. Each box would be about 12 inches square with a narrow slot on each end. On one side of the box were a number of highly polished brass knobs and dials. We've put a photo of the box on our Instagram page. It's worth having a look on there so you can get the idea. In 1926, Lustig headed for Palm Beach in Florida, where he met a man called Herman Lola. Lola made car parts, but his business was struggling as a result of the fast expansion of large car companies. Lola was looking to get rich quick, which unfortunately is the perfect quality in a mark. 
Lustig told Lola his usual riches to rags story, but also told Lola that he found a great way to get rich. Lola, naturally intrigued, asked what it was, and Lustig showed Lola his mahogany box. Lustig told Lola it was a money duplicating machine. Lustig insisted that it was not counterfeiting and that all banks would accept notes produced by the machine. You wouldn't believe that, would you? <laughs> well, he did. <laughs> you wouldn't know, would you? It's like when people put a five on the floor, you know, like, and then move it. Like well, a on, a, on a string. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. Lustig demonstrated the machine by putting a $1,000 bill in one end and a piece of blank paper in the other. He then turned all the switches and knobs and told Lola that the note needs to be left for exactly six hours for the note to copy properly. Six hours later, the men returned to the box and sure enough, there were two bills. Of course, the second one had been put there earlier by Lustig and he had altered the serial numbers on the bills so they matched. The men took the bills to a bank to confirm if they were real, which, of course, the bank verified. So, Lustig offered to sell the machine to Lola telling him that it was the only one in existence. How gullible. You wouldn't believe it, It's absolutely you? absurd, but he does. He, he buys it anyway. Anyway, he bought the machine for $25,000. Huge. Now, this is the second time in this story where I don't really get the price of things. Right? Earlier, Lustig sold some scrap metal for $70,000, and yet here he is supposedly selling a machine that prints money for just twenty-five grand. I think he needs to work on his price list. Weird. Anyway, uh, so after the sale, Lustig figured he had just six hours to get as far away as possible before the scam was found out. Of course, six hours, that's how long he told him it would take to copy the notes. That was buying himself time, basically, to, to, to go on the run. However, it turns out he actually had much longer than six hours. Lola initially thought he'd been setting the machine up wrong and tried to use the machine for weeks before realising he'd been conned. Now... Not the sharpest tool in the shed. No, oh, he really Lola. he really isn't. I have zero sympathy for him at this point of the story. Like I understand he's been conned, but what an absolute moron. Like he deserves everything he gets. Lustig hopped all over the States for many years, performing the Romanian box scam, as well as many other scams all over America. One of his marks was none other than the notorious American gangster Al Capone or Scarface. Now this one is a bit of a weird one. It's low value and very high risk. This is a maniac gangster who would certainly have sought retribution if he got wind of the scam. He'd be pretty scared, wouldn't you? Yeah, he'd be terrified. Don't care, does he, old Lustig? I genuinely think he was just playing around here, testing himself. Could he con one of the most dangerous men on the planet? The answer is yes. The con was this. Lustig convinced Al Capone that he had an illegal money-making scheme on the go and that Al Capone should definitely get involved. Al Capone invested $50,000 in Lustig's scam, but there was no such scam. Lustig simply held on to the money for two months before returning it, saying the deal had fallen through. Returning the money in full convinced Al Capone that Lustig was an honest and trustworthy man. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Lustig then told Al Capone that the failure of the deal had left him broke, so Al Capone gave him $5,000 to tide him over. Literally none of what Lustig had told Al Capone had been true, but it had worked. Lustig continued to get more brazen and a bit more cocky. 
and his next big scam would be the one that would eventually lead to his capture. Lustig joined forces with an engraver called William Watts and a chemist called Tom Shaw to launch mass production of counterfeit money. Yeah, so his next scam is all about counterfeiting money. Does this change your opinion of Lustig at all? What do you think? Because up until the... Because up until this point, I really quite like him. I know he's a, I know he's a serial like criminal, but he's he's very skilled. He can get away with absolutely anything. Like he's he's cocky. I quite like the guy. Yet now he's just gone. Oh, forget it. I'm just going to print my own money. It's like it feels to me like he's given up a bit at this point. He's just run out of ideas. It's but exactly what's happened. Yeah. So he sat there reading the paper, thinking, "I know, just print some more money." Yeah. Disappointing, I think, at this point. But anyway. Watson Shaw took care of the production, using engraved plates to print the money, and Lustig took care of distribution. They produced a hell of a lot of money, over $1 million, and at one point, New York banks estimated that they were discovering over 100 k of fake money every single month. This racket continued for over five years and the sheer volume of fake money flooding the US economy resulted in the Secret Service setting up a special squad to find its source. They suspected Lustig, but were unable to track him down until an anonymous tip-off, believed to be from his mistress, who was furious because he was cheating on her with Tom Shaw's girlfriend. What a dirty dog. So much for honour amongst thieves. Anyway, following the tip, Lustig was arrested and a key was found on his person that opened a lockbox. The lockbox contained over $50,000 in counterfeit money, as well as the plates that were used to print it. Lustig was detained and the circulation of fake notes around New York dried up pretty much immediately. The day before his trial, the slippery count, that wasn't actually a count, uh, managed to con his way out of prison. Now, this is pretty clever. Uh, so Lustig noticed that every day the prison attendants would come round with bed linen, ask how many occupants in the cell, and they would hand over that number of bed sheets. Then when they came round to collect the dirty linen, they never ever counted them back again. So when offered linen, Lustig would always take one more bed sheet than he needed, and he tore a slit in his mattress where he stuffed all the extra bed sheets, accumulating a number of sheets over a number of weeks. He had also stolen a pair of wire cutters. Now, I've tried to find out where he got the wire cutters from. I have absolutely no idea. I can only assume it's one of those cases of it's amazing what you can get hold of in prison. I don't know. But he's got wire cutters and now loads of bed sheets. The day before his trial, when most of the prisoners were listening to the radio, Lustig removed all his extra sheets and tore them into strips to fashion a rope. As part of the daily routine, prisoners were taken onto the roof of the prison at noon for exercise. However, Lustig faked illness and stayed behind. That's classic. Don't want to do PA, isn't it? Get fake a sick (laughs) note. Yeah, sick note. (laughs) So cliche. Whilst everyone was gone, he went to the third floor bathroom and used the wire cutters to cut through the window frame and step out onto the ledge. He used the white linen as a cleaning cloth, convincing any spectators that he was cleaning the windows. I mean, you've got to give it for this guy, haven't you? He just doesn't care, does he? He just he just does what he wants. And people buy it every time. There Zero. he is pretending to be a clean, window cleaner. Zero fucks given, Zero. isn't he? Yeah. Old Lustig. Then his window cleaning cloth suddenly extended into a rope. Lustig slipped down it, 
took a bow and ran off into the sea. I love the bow. Fair play for the bow. He's such a little shit. 27 days later, he was recaptured, stood trial, and the star witness for the prosecution was the also recently captured William Watts, who was the plate engraver from his counterfeiting operation. Both Watts and Lustig were sentenced to 15 years in prison, and Lustig was sentenced to a further five years for his escape. He was sent to Alcatraz to see out his sentence. However, 11 years later, on the 9th of March 1947, Lustig contracted pneumonia. He died just two days later at the age of 57. His death certificate stated his profession as a salesman. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I don't know where they got that from. I Maybe more like magician. <laughs> that is what he should have said. Oh dear, anyway. Or somebody who likes the performing arts. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Throughout his time in prison, Lustig boasted to fellow inmates about the many lavish complex and cunning cons he had carried out over the years. And he even penned his Ten Commandments of the con. <laughs> oh, he's like, I actually quite want to be mates with him. I like him. The Ten Commandments of the con thing is quite funny, but he does end up in prison. So, do you know what I mean? Like, you can follow his advice if you want, but he's not the perfect con man because he does eventually get caught. Do you know what I mean? He isn't the perfect con man, but he's trying. He's a bit, he's a legend. And everyone loves a trier. Everyone loves a trier. So, the commandments of the con, basically, is a rule book for any wannabe con artist. His ten commandments were... Number one, be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets a con man his coops. Two, never look bored. Right, why? <laughs> what difference does that make? Apparently, no, people won't believe you if you look bored. I'd make a rubbish con man because yeah. I always look bored. Even when I'm not bored, I look bored. Yeah. Anyway. Number three, wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Number four, let the other person reveal religious views then have the same ones. Basically, just nod and smile to people. That's what these... Basically, have no personality. I like this one. Number five, hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other fellow shows a strong interest. So just a subtle (laughs) mention, and if they don't bite, just leave it at that. That's what he's saying. Uh, Number six, never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. So... That. Again, I don't know Weakness. why. Yeah, I don't know what difference that makes unless so unless someone asks, you know, are oh, you limping a lot? What's the matter with you? And just never ever pretend to be ill. What about if you've got a cold? You can't. You can't. You're not allowed to say. Like, what what difference does that make? Into I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're meant to be like superhuman. Yeah. Even though these ten commandments sound a bit of a con as well, don't they? <laughs> they could be. We've been. I think he's having his arm. He is. Yeah. Number seven. Never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll all tell you eventually. Interesting. That's probably that probably is true. That one, isn't it? Look, don't ask too many. questions. Don't ask questions, but people will tell you. I love on a the, question. Yeah, you're just nosy though. Uh, number eight. Never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Love that one. Ah, oh, he's so obnoxious, isn't he? <laughs> number nine. Never be untidy. And number ten. Never get drunk.
So there you have it. Uh, 10 tips to being a con man and the incredible story of Victor Lustig. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Cond. If you enjoyed it, please click subscribe for future episodes. Also give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter at Condcast or we're online, concast.com. See ya.